Last Sunday was Easter, and so Easter is exciting for all kinds of reasons, um, mostly because we are celebrating Christ's resurrection. And so we say, okay, well, this is wonderful, Christ has risen. And uh, it was extra exciting for us because it was our first Sunday at New Life downtown, and we were bursting at the seams, and it was just fun. And so the Sunday after Easter can always feel like a bit of a letdown because you're kind of stuck with this question of the, well, now what? Now, if you grew up in a traditional church, it's not really the Sunday after Easter, it's really the second Sunday of Easter. And what I mean by that is, is some of you that have been with us at New Life Sunday night, you've been journeying with us through the season that the church calls Lent. And Lent is a way to, to, to fast, to humble ourselves, as a way to really help us focus on Christ as we kind of go through the season. And, but you know, the, the whole design of it is not to have a period of fasting for 40 days, it's actually 46 days, and then you come to Easter and you say, oh, well, that was nice. That was a wonderful roller coaster ride of emotions and fasting, and okay, that's over now. Really, we're supposed to say, okay, as much as the fast was a humbling, the feast is supposed to be this outbreak of life and love and, and, and this, this transforming power of God. But it's so easy to kind of feel like it's a letdown, to feel like, well, that was a nice high, it was Easter, it was exciting, it was great, and, and, and now what? And maybe the first followers of Jesus might have felt a little bit like that. Christ is risen, now what? What do we do with our faith? What does the resurrection of Jesus mean for his followers who are on the earth here and now? There's a theologian, at, he's the chair of systematic theology at Yale Divinity School. His name is Miroslav Volf, and he writes about how our faith can malfunction in one of two ways. Now, of course, our faith can malfunction in several ways, but for the purpose of his discussion, he says sometimes our faith on the one hand can malfunction because it starts to idle. You know, like a car, let's say you, you were driving your car on the side of the road and your battery died, and the, the tow truck guy came and he gave you a jump, and your car's working now and you're revving up the engine, and, and the guy says, well, are you going to go home? He says, no, I'm just going to stay here and rev the engine. You know, well, that's sort of missing the point. Your faith is idling. The engine's going, but it's just sitting in neutral. Oh, this is cool. Aren't you supposed to go somewhere with this? But the other side of our faith malfunctioning, maybe on the other end of the spectrum, is when our faith becomes coercive. When out of a passion for Christ, you begin to force your way on someone else. Now, none of you, I'm sure, have ever done that. But all of us probably know someone who has. Maybe they just came back from a youth camp or a retreat or they had this mountaintop experience with God and so they were determined to make you see the world as they are now seeing the world. And, they, and, and part of it is excitement, but part of it ends up being coercive. You, know, you ever experienced anybody like that or anything like that? And they just, you know, you go, to, you go to the coffee shop with them and someone says, what would you like to order? And they say, do you know where you're going if you died tonight, you know? And they've got this faith, and they think that the only way to make this faith alive is to sort of force it on someone else. So I'm going to force someone to adopt my views, and whether it's through power or through manipulation or through debate or through legislation or whatever it is, it, faith sort of begins to distort when we make it coercive. But the other option's not very good either, is it? And it seems like we, we, we sway back and forth from between these two poles. We say, well, Jesus is risen, so let's just kind of sit and wait for heaven. Or Jesus is risen, so let's take over. What did it mean for the first followers of Jesus? 
What does it mean for us to say that Jesus has risen? What does it mean to live like Jesus is the risen King? There's a billboard on I-25 that you maybe have seen, and maybe as you've driven down south, you've seen it a number of times, but it says, God is an imaginary friend. Choose reality. It'll be better for all of us. Now, I don't know what your reaction is when you see a billboard like this. Some of you maybe get angry. How dare they? Some of you maybe are listing in your mind 10 proofs for why God's more than imaginary. Look, all of us have our ways of coping. But I would like to suggest to you that this billboard is one of the most helpful things we as Christians could get. This billboard is a mirror that the world is holding up in front of us and saying, this is what your faith looks like. It looks like you just have an imaginary friend. Sometimes you see a billboard like this and you're so, we're so quick to want to answer back, but we haven't really listened first. Do you listen to what this billboard is saying to you? Do you listen to what it's saying to us as Christians in this city for whom the Colorado Coalition of Reason rented space to put this up? What are they saying to us? I suspect it's a little bit like what the philosopher Nietzsche was saying at the end of the 19th century. He wrote in one of his famous works, God is dead. You guys have heard this. God is dead. Another statement that sounds so offensive, especially on the second Sunday of Easter, For the love of God, Glenn, how could you say this? But Nietzsche wasn't saying God is dead as in I don't believe in God or or God isn't real. What Nietzsche was saying was really an indictment on a culture that claimed to be Christian but lived as if God was irrelevant. And so Nietzsche goes on, he says, God is dead, but we have killed him. And these churches that we gather in are nothing but God's graveside. The point is, it's good and well to come in church and sing nice songs and confess this name of Jesus, but if this God has no bearing on our living, then functionally, He is dead. Or, as our friends in our city tell us, He's just an imaginary friend. I wonder if we've earned this badge. I wonder if this really is a mirror, to some degree, maybe not all of us, but maybe to some degree... Jesus's, people say that God is just an imaginary friend to us because that's all Jesus means to you and me. He's just the guy that we talk to when you're feeling blue. He'll cheer you up. God's like a therapist in the sky who will say, there, there, everything's going to be better. All is well, all is well. Or maybe for us, Jesus' resurrection just means that God's going to get us all out of here one day. And so he, it's an, he's an imaginary friend that will take us to an imaginary place and it's just all sort of up there and out there and woo. And maybe we've earned that because we talk about Jesus as if his resurrection only means evacuation. I want to tell you this morning that the first followers of Jesus did not believe that about his resurrection. You won't find in the pages of the book of Acts, which we're about to begin a series studying through the book of Acts next week, and it's going to take us through the whole rest of this calendar year, and I'm so excited about it, but you won't find these disciples, these first followers of Jesus, preaching, if you died tonight, do you know where you'll go? And Jesus is raised from the dead, and so we can all fly away. Listen, it's true there is forgiveness, and it's true there is this space where God dwells that is heaven, but every concern is about heaven 
beginning to burst into earth and not about our evacuation. In fact, stay with me for this. This might be a little mind-bending, but that's what we're supposed to do here, right? The first followers of Jesus weren't thinking as much about two separate worlds, earth and heaven, as much as they were thinking about two separate ages or times, this present evil time and that future time, the age to come when God makes it all right. What they didn't expect was that when God raised Jesus from the dead, he made the age to come start now, while this present age was still sort of going on. And so the followers of Jesus are living between two ages, two time zones. Anyone who's ever done international travel, I'm looking at Jim here and Gary here, and lots of you, we just came back from Africa a couple of weeks ago, and the first couple days you're like, you're just sort of, which time zone am I on? That's what it kind of looks like to follow Jesus sometimes. Because you have this present age which screams its own values and its own system of living, and it says this way, get, 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 abuse, manipulate, control, climb, grab, achieve. And then you have this new time zone that has crashed into the present one that Jesus began when he rose from the dead that says, no, 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 love, forgive, and give, and forgive, repeat. And here we are, the people of God, sort of like groggy, jet lag travelers living between two time zones saying, whoa, 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 which is it? When we look at the scriptures, you will find that um, the way that they begin to instruct believers about how to live is very much as if Jesus really is king of the world right here, right now. As if there's a new king that's just been announced. As if the old king and his old weapons no longer matter, there's a new king now. God has become king here and now. His kingdom from from heaven has come to rule even now. And yes, there is a future dimension to it. Yes, one day it will all be fulfilled. But even now, there's a new way of living. The church actually is a new, this is going to sound spooky, But the church is a kind of an alternative society. It's a new community. It's a people that live by a different order and a different rule and a different way. But I wonder if because we think that Jesus' resurrection just means our evacuation, that we don't live by a different way. We're not really an alternative community or society. And so the world looks at us and says, oh, God's an imaginary friend. This should sort of say to us, whoa, 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 what are we doing here? Paul wrote many letters to many churches, and they passed them on to other churches. And his letters were designed to help the people of God, these young churches, understand what it means to really live like Jesus has risen. He's risen, he's risen, he's king. That means a new way. We're following a new person. And Ephesians is one of these masterful letters because it outlines how we're supposed to live. In Ephesians 4, Paul begins by saying, walk worthy of this calling. And we're going to pick it up here in verse 17 of Ephesians 4. So I'm telling you this, and I insist on it in the Lord. You shouldn't live your life life like the Gentiles anymore. They base their lives on pointless thinking, and they are dark in their reasoning. They are disconnected from God's life because of their ignorance and their closed hearts. I love that. There's, a, there's no life. There's disconnected from life. 
And there are people who lack all sense of right and wrong who have turned themselves over to doing whatever feels good and to practicing every sort of corruption along with greed. Sounds familiar for our own day, doesn't it? If you were to really press a person uh, as to how they make their decisions in life, they would probably say to you something like, well, I just want to be happy. I just want to follow my heart. I just want to find fulfillment. I just want to enjoy life. I want to experience some sort of satisfaction in life. And so I'm going to make whatever decisions will allow me to experience satisfaction. Paul says, this is the way you used to live, but it ain't the way you live anymore. You didn't learn that sort of thing from Christ. Since you really listened to him and you were taught how, how the truth is in Jesus, change the former way of life that was part of the person you once were. So, so wait a minute, so coming to follow Jesus means I'm going to change part of how I once was, corrupted by deceitful desires, and instead renew the thinking in your mind by the Spirit, and clothe yourself with the new person created according to God's image in justice and true holiness. That's a wonderful word picture, clothe yourself with a new person. You ever... You know, I've been in a situation where, you know, you got a new job and you have to dress it, you know, a different way. For, for me, that was when I went to college. I went to a Christian university that made us all wear, all the men wear ties. They've since relaxed their rules. But when we were there, it was, you know, men in ties at all times. And, um, and the theory was that if you wore a tie, you would be more professional and you would start talking nice, more nicely. Uh, I don't know if that's true. But, but that's something about putting on some, a, a new outfit, a new garment that makes you live uh, a little bit differently. I see this with my kids when they put on costumes and all of a sudden they've entered into this new world that they've created because the bedsheet is not a bedsheet, it's a robe that they are now, you know, whoever. You know. And this is kind of the point. Paul is saying, look, following Jesus means putting on something new that kind of feels unfamiliar. So if you were hoping that following Jesus was just going to come naturally, the bad news is that it's not. The bad news is that it's going to feel foreign. It's going to feel unnatural. It's going to feel like a shirt you've never worn before. It's going to feel like jeans that aren't broken in. It's going to feel like an outfit that you've, you're smiling because you're like, eh, I know that. It's going to feel like something that's not quite right at first, but we keep clothing ourselves with it. And therefore, after, e after you've gotten rid of lying, each of you must tell the truth to your neighbor because we are parts of each other in the same body and be angry without sinning and don't let the sun set on your anger and don't provide an opportunity for the devil. Thieves should no longer steal, but instead they should go to work using their hands to do good so that they will have something to share with whoever is in need. And don't let any foul words come out of your mouth. Only say what is helpful when it is needed for building up the community so it benefits those who hear what you say. And don't make the Holy Spirit of God unhappy for you were sealed by him for the day of redemption. He's not done yet. And put aside all bitterness, losing your temper, anger, shouting, slander, slander, along with every other evil. And be kind, compassionate, forgiving to each other in the same way that God forgave you in Christ. Paul's saying no more lying, there's truth telling. No more taking but contributing. No more tearing down and tearing apart but building up. No more living by anger and hate and resentment and unforgiveness, but forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness. Paul is saying there is this new way of living. And he goes on in Ephesians 5, verse 1 and 2, because 
chapter markings and verse markings were added loads of years later, you know, hundreds of centuries, centuries after the, the scriptures were written. Paul wrote his letter as a letter, so his main point could be in Ephesians 5 verse 1, which I think it is. He says, therefore, imitate God like dearly loved children. In short, live your life with love, following the example of Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. He was a sacrificial offering that smelled sweet to God. So the bottom line, Paul says, of what it means to live like Jesus is the risen king is to live like Jesus with self-giving love. Living like Jesus is the risen king means his way of living is the new way of living. And what is that way? In short, self-giving love. Love that lays itself down. Love that forgives and forgives and gives and gives until it is all completely spent. Now, I don't know if you catch the um, humor in this, but I've basically said to you, well, all you need to do is live like Jesus. So God bless you. Go grab someone for lunch on the way out, and good luck with that. We're going to talk, of course, in a minute about how in the world we're supposed to stumble through this. But I want you first to catch this. To live like Jesus is risen. Think about all the things Paul has used to describe this old way of living. Words like anger. Words like hate. Words like division. Words like unforgiveness. And think about all of these things being the currency that the world runs on. The world runs on a currency of selfishness that says, go ahead and get yours, and if you have to sell someone out and push someone down and step on them, then do it. This is the way, after all, we've heard, the world works. This is the way the world works. All of the forces of the power of the way the world works is what put Jesus on the cross on Good Friday. There is religious leaders who became power hungry and wanted to have control their way. And there's political leaders who ran an empire and wanted to suppress any rival revolutionary. And the political power and religious corrupt power colluded together to crucify the Son of God. Jesus on the cross, if it ends with the cross, you would say, aha, you see? This is just the way the world is. This is how it works. Hate wins. Anger wins. Power wins. Might is right. But the gospel doesn't end on Good Friday. It ends, it, it, it bursts into life on Easter Sunday, and it's God's way of announcing to the world, no, it does not. Hate does not win. Death is not the last word. Violence and selfishness will not have the day. Love wins. Love triumphs. Love, Paul writes, conquers all. When God raised Jesus from the dead, it's an announcement to the world that we are no longer playing by these rules. We're not playing by the rules of anger and hate and selfishness and me and mine. Paul, in fact, if you read Ephesians carefully, begins to change their language from me and my to our. And he starts to say, look, we're all, there's only one body. There's only one church. There's only one people. 
They may gather in a Catholic place or in an Eastern Orthodox place or in a Lutheran place or in a non-denominational place that meets in an old African Methodist Episcopal place. But there's only one church. You have a new way of seeing the world now. Jesus has risen. It's all different. It's all different. And it means then that we, this new colony of the king, has got to live this new way. This way of self-giving, sacrificial, forgiving love. But how? In Ephesians 5, verse 1 and 2, that verse I just read to you, Paul says, look, as dearly loved children of God, imitate God. I love this because it kind of sets us up right away and says, look, how can we live like this? First of all, because we are dearly loved children of God. First of all, because we are dearly loved children of God. Some of you, depending on the church that you grew up in, heard uh, a sort of gospel that went like this. Look, if you can be good enough, if you can obey God enough, if you can be kind enough, compassionate enough, sweet enough, bake good enough apple pies, if whatever it is, then God loves you. And if you don't, then I don't know. But the very order of things is quite the opposite. God says to us, I know you're not good enough. But Jesus has come, taken the weight of your sin and your shame on himself, and he's risen from the dead, which means all of you are now adopted into the family. If you're in Christ, you're in. But now that you're in the family, there's certain things about this family you need to learn. A certain way to live. In America, we are so obsessed with acceptance and rejection. We tend to see the whole world in, through the lens of acceptance and rejection. And so we want to stop at the place of acceptance. God accepts me. The end. And I understand how powerful that is. And truly, it is life-changing. But the gospel goes on and says, because he has loved you as dearly loved children, you can now live this my, we have three kids. We have two daughters, seven and five. Sophia's seven, Nora's five, Jonas is two and a half. And he doesn't know how to ride his bike yet. But I have not said to him, now son, you are not my son until you learn to ride a bike. I have not said to him, now, now, now Jonas, until you get this whole bike thing down, you can call me Mr. Pacquiam. No, none of this dad <laughs> stuff. That doesn't work. In fact, it's because he's my son that I'm committed to helping him, even though he's pretty strong-willed. He's got those little, that little tricycle thing. He doesn't want to put his feet on the pedals. He wants to put his feet on the pavement, which kind of works when you turn left out of our house because the, the sidewalk goes downhill. So he thinks he's doing really well. You know? He's like, look that. You know? And then it's time to come back up, and he realizes he can't go uphill. And when I try to push him, he goes, no, I do it. Okay, all right, kid. And then he sits there, you know, for five minutes. And then I just kind of give a little push with my feet, with, with my hands out here so he doesn't think I'm pushing him, you know. Just got a little push. The, and he thinks he's got it, you know. But because he's my dearly loved son, I'm going to help him learn to imitate us, to live like us, to live like this. Anybody who's ever had a child knows the feeling when you see a baby in the hospital or right away and you think this child hasn't said a word 
can't say I love you, can't do the dishes, which is unfortunate, <laughs> can't put away their toys, can't make me a Father's Day card, and yet you love this child as dearly loved children of God begin to imitate God. This is where we start. We start from the place of being dearly loved. And then we begin this process of imitation and learning and new habits and all of that. But I also wonder if sometimes we struggle with this because in the back of our minds, we have horror stories about the God of the Old Testament. And we sort of think, well, maybe God was kind of mean and then now he's gracious, but, but I don't know. And sometimes, you know, there, there, are, there are preachers that emphasize, use this, they use this language of, Law versus gospel. And so this is law and then this is gospel. And then what they're trying to do is to teach us that some, that some of the time you'll read something that's God saying, this is how you live, law. And then this is gospel. This is what God has done for you. But some of these guys push that division a little too hard. I read a tweet from a well-known Reformed pastor this week who said, God doesn't serve mixed drinks of law and gospel. Which God is a bartender is an interesting an analogy anyway. Um, <laughs> Uh, he says, he says no, God, God serves separate shots of law and then gospel. And I thought that was really strange. So the shot of the law is supposed to knock us out and then the shot of the gospel is supposed to pep us up like a seltzer or something. I, I don't really know, but it, it, what, how does this thing work? And it makes us, sometimes we push this into a caricature and then you think that the God of the Old Testament was bad cop and the New Testament God's good cop and so, dearly loved children of God, am I really? How do I know I am? How do I know God's not a recovering rageaholic and he's going to have a relapse when it comes to me? <laughs> when you look more closely at the Old Testament, does God give Israel the law before he calls them his people, before he chooses Abraham, or after? Think about it. Who's first, Abraham or Moses? Abraham. So God chooses Abraham before there's a law. Right. So what did Abraham do to deserve that? I don't know. What did you do to deserve this? Hmm. Okay. So then when God sends Moses to rescue Israel, he says in Exodus 3, I've heard the cries of my people. So he saves them because they're his people, but does God save them before he gives them a law or after? Before. No, wait a minute. So he chooses them by grace. He saves them by grace, and then he gives them a law. Now, that sounds an awful lot like the New Testament. Right. Same God, isn't it? Uh-huh. Interesting. Another thing, and this is a bit of a tangent, but I, 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 it's, I can't help myself, so here it is. Someone asked me the other night at the mill, how come God, if God makes laws, how come God changes laws? I thought laws are always permanent and all this stuff. The first place where we go off here is by translating the word Torah as law. Torah is not law. Torah is teaching. It's instruction. You and I hear law, we hear rules. And rules, by golly, don't ever change. But when you say Torah is teaching or instruction, every parent knows your instruction to your kids change. And I don't mean change from like 2 o'clock to 4 o'clock sometimes. But they change as your kids change. They change as your kids age. They change as they mature. So your instructions to your children at two are going to be different than your instructions to them at 12. And what if you read the Old Testament as God, the parent, 
Israel the son, and God said, all right, let's, here's the boundary, big line. Don't go near the pool. You're going to drown. And then he says, okay, you ready for a little bit more? Let's, let's get a little more nuanced with this. Or one example, love your brother. Don't kill your brother. Life is sacred, but kill those Canaanites. What? God's saying, maybe, let's start here. It's like parents saying, I'll tell you what, don't beat up your brother anymore. And then as your kids get older, you know what, don't beat anybody up. That's just not nice. And so you get to Jesus and he says, love even your enemies. So when you read the Bible, ask yourself, is this God's last word on the subject? Or is the story still going? Are there more instructions yet? Okay, that might change the way you read the Bible. That's totally a tangent. Where are we? We are dearly loved children of God. (laughs) Wonderful. Okay, that God is patiently parenting and teaching. Secondly, Paul goes on in Ephesians 5, verse 18. Don't get drunk on wine, which produces depravity. Instead, be filled with the Spirit in the following ways. Speak to each other with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music to the Lord in your hearts. Always give thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And submit to each other out of respect for Christ. Paul's wrapping up his letter and he's saying, Look, how is it that you can live in such a way that submits to each other and respects one another, forgives one another? How can you do this? Because you're going to be daily being filled with the Holy Spirit. This is a continuous verb here. It's not, sometimes I think charismatics have failed the body of Christ because we talk about the Holy Spirit either like he's a hit, like a hit that we take, or that he's a high that we get, or that he's a second experience that we have. Instead of talking about the Holy Spirit as the third person of the Trinity who's come to live inside of you and empower you to live this new life every day. And so every day our prayer ought to be, Holy Spirit, fill me up again. Fill me up again, not so I can have a high or a goosebump or a moment or an encounter or an experience, but fill me up again so I can live with this kind of Christ-like love. So I can forgive when I've been hurt for the tenth time. So I can give of myself when I feel like I've come to the end. So I can let go of bitterness when I feel so badly like I want to hang on to it. Let the Holy Spirit fill us up. Last week, we read out of John 20 and John 21, but we skipped four verses or three verses out of John 20, and I want to read them to you today. John 20, verse 19 through 22, it was still the first day of the week, meaning it was Easter, the very first Easter Sunday. And that evening, while the disciples were behind closed doors because they were afraid of the Jewish authorities, Jesus came and stood among them, and he said, peace be with you, after he scared them. No. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And when the disciples saw the Lord, they were filled with joy. And Jesus said again, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. And then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And if you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. And if you don't forgive them, they aren't forgiven. Resurrection Day. Jesus meets his disciples and he says, he's already said to them, look, it's good that I go because once I go, I'll send you the Spirit of God inside you. And now the first thing he does as he comes and he meets with his disciples, he says, receive it now. Here it is. It's time. It's time. 
if there's going to really be a new day that's dawned in the middle of this old dark night, if there's going to be this new community that's springing to life in the midst of the world that's tearing apart in selfishness, how are we going to live with Christ's love? By the Spirit of God. By the Spirit of God filling us. Filling us. Filling us. I um, try occasionally to be a good dad and thoughtful about what I read to our kids. And, um, oh, now I've lost the page. And so leading up to Holy Week, um, we began to read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Anybody read Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis? Yeah, love this stuff. Seen the movie maybe? Yeah. Um, the books are better. Um, but we tried to read it kind of in progression, so we ended up reading about Aslan, who is this Christ figure in the story. He's a lion. And uh, Aslan dies and then um, is, is raised. Um, not very subtle there about what the uh, story is trying to model. But there's this witch that has reigned in Narnia, and her curse, part of her curse, is that she freezes living creatures. And she turns them into stone. And so all around her palace courtyard, are these animals once alive and vibrant, now marble, stone, statues. And so Aslan, as soon as he's alive, he, come, he, he leads them to this place. And I just want to read a couple pages. And if you're a kid, you'll really like this. But if you're a kid at heart, you'll also really like this. What an extraordinary place, cried Lucy. All these stone animals and people too. It's, it's, it's like a museum. Hush, said Susan. Aslan's doing something. And he was indeed. He had bounded up to the stone lion and breathed on him. And then without waiting a moment, he whisked around almost as if he had been a cat chasing its tail and breathed also on the stone dwarf, which, as you remember, was standing a few feet from the lion with his back to it. And then he pounced on a tall stone dryad which stood beyond the dwarf, turned rapidly aside to deal with the stone rabbit on his right and rushed on to two centaurs. But at that moment, Lucy said, Oh, Susan, look. Look at the lion. Now, I expect you've seen someone put a lighted match to a bit of newspaper, which is propped up in a grate against an unlit fire. And for a second, nothing seems to have happened. And then you notice a tiny streak of flame creeping along the edge of the newspaper. Well, it was like that now. For a second after Aslan had breathed upon him, the stone lion looked just the same. Sometimes, well, what's different? Jesus risen? Hmm. Still struggling with the same old habits. But then a tiny streak of gold began to run along his white marble back, and then it spread, and then the colors seemed to lick all over him as the, flames, as, as the flame licks all over a bit of paper. And then while his back was still obviously stone, the lion shook his mane, and all the heavy stone folds rippled into living hair. And then he opened a great red mouth, warm and living, and gave a prodigious yawn, and now his back legs had come to life, and he lifted one of them and scratched himself. And then, having caught sight of Aslan, he went bounding after him, frisking round him, whimpering with delight and jumping up. But of course, the children's eyes turned to follow that, the lion. But the sight they saw was so wonderful that they soon forgot about him, because everywhere the statues were coming to life. The courtyard looked no longer like a museum. It looked more like a zoo. A pretty apt description of a congregation, a zoo. <laughs> but in some ways, the truth of it is, 
Resurrection life means that we've been breathed on in with the Spirit of God. We begin to live with a new kind of love, a love that would not be possible if Jesus were not the risen King. I was thinking this week of all the men and women throughout the centuries who in Jesus' name have done remarkable things, selfless, sacrificial. I think about the stories from the early Christian centuries of when the plagues, which we later sort of guess are, was something like maybe smallpox, but they were plagues that wiped out the population. And there's stories here. There's, there's, a, there's a, a sociologist named Stark who's written about this in a book called The Rise of Christianity. And these pagans would rush away from the city and flee into the countryside because they didn't want this to catch this epidemic. And their bodies after bodies after bodies strewn around the pagan temples because these people had come hoping for help, but none, no one was there except for the Christians. The Christians stayed and began to care for one another, and then they began to recover and get back to health. And smallpox, we now know, is the sort of thing that if you survive, you'll be immune. So not only are Christians these ones that are staying and caring for each other and others, but once they recover, they're immune. And so now these pagans are looking at the Christians and thinking, how are these guys with us and not getting sick? It's a miracle. A miracle of love. I think of the story several years back of a New Life doctor who was serving in Hong Kong when the SARS epidemic broke out and how they stayed while other expatriates were being asked to leave and encouraged to leave. These guys stayed and treated the people that they could care for. I think about the email that I got last night from Pastor Ronald who moved his family from Zambia to live in an abandoned hospital building in Swaziland to care for these orphans. I think of how David and Marie Works were able to sit down and meet with the family of the son who took their daughter's lives on our campus five years ago. I think of the extraordinary ways that Christians give and forgive. And I think this is what it means to live like Jesus is the risen King. This is what it means to say to the world, He's not an imaginary friend that's got our evacuation plan all set. He's a risen King who's reigning now and whose way is love and sacrifice and forgiveness and calls us to join Him in living this way. Amen?